Hello, and welcome to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is my friend Megan Husted. Her memoir is called More Than Conquerors. It's just out from Farrakh, Strauss, and Drew, and I'm really delighted to have her here to talk about it. I'm delighted to be here. Thank awesome. you, Ron. When we first met years ago... It was a while ago. It yeah. was ages. And you had sort of mentioned glancingly to me at some point that you had a missionary past. Right. I remember this conversation. 2005, 6? Yeah. yeah. We had never really followed up on that tidbit of information. And here we are now. And, and this book really sort of plunges right into that part of your past. It does. It does. And it's funny. I think we were talking on the occasion of promoting how to be useful, my first book. So I was about you know, in my early 30s then, and I had just started writing then. I had never aspired to be a writer. But years before that, when I was working in publishing as an editorial assistant and assistant editor, you know, editor, never even thinking about writing, people would tell me when they heard that my parents had been missionaries, or at least experimented with being missionaries for about nine years, that I should write about that. And I always poo-pooed the idea. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. And I would always say something cynical, like, you know, I'm not interested in writing about, in reading about anyone's childhood, <laughs> let alone writing about my own. Um, and I think partly, you know, to be honest with you, that was a way of deflecting the question, or the, the, the challenge that's implicit in that question, whether intended or not, to really come to terms. That's a negative way of putting it. Um, to re-examine this, this thing that I experienced, which not many people here in New York can relate to, which not many people anywhere can relate to, because it's quite a particular family story, but I do think it has a lot of universals in it. I certainly hope so. You talk a, a lot about this in the New York sections of the memoir, about exactly this. I mean, you came to New York specifically to create a kind of rupture with, mm -hmm. with your past. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people come to New York with that agenda, whether they have it at the forefront of their consciousness mm -hmm. or not. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, if, I mean, if you came here to escape your past, the last thing you want to do is go back and revisit it. <laughs> Sit and marinate it, yeah. Yeah, and I knew this book would be sort of, you know, writing it once I did start would be cathartic in many ways and, and, and painful. So I didn't, I didn't even begin to think about doing it until it just became startlingly, blindingly sort of road to Damascus, so to speak, obvious that I that I had to get this story down. And what was that sort of road to Damascus moment for you? <laughs> Apologies to anyone who's not familiar with the New Testament here or sort of speaking in the dog whistles here. <laughs> it was nothing, you know, it was, it, it, I'm being slightly disingenuous, it wasn't one particular precipitating incident. It was more uh, interior that I felt ready, I felt ready to do so. And in my, my relationship with my family, it seemed like it would be helpful to arrive at some, at least tell my version of the story in a way that could, you know, fingers crossed, be redemptive for all of us. Because for reasons that I won't belabor right now in this conversation, maybe not in the rest of it, but it's clear to anyone who reads the book, there was definitely a need for that. And let's circle back a little bit and, and lay the background. As a small child, when your parents inform you and your right. older sister that you're leaving the country and you're going to, well, you take it from there. Um, okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I was so enjoying your narration. I was willing to look your rate in that. Um, yeah, so when I was three years old, my sister was nine. We were living in Minneapolis. My father was a teacher, a, high, a history teacher at a public high school. My mother worked for JCPenney's department stores. Nice middle class family, two blonde girls. And then my parents, 
who both had been raised by Baptist ministers, had fallen away from the church in their in their twenties, come back to it, and decided to quit their jobs and work for an evangelical Christian missionary organization called Transworld Radio and and leave the country and um, have some adventures. So we lived in Bonaire, which is an island in the Netherlands Antilles, right off the coast of Venezuela, for about five years. And then we were transferred to the Netherlands, and we lived there for four years. And then things didn't quite go as well as they'd hoped. So we moved back to the States. Uh, I was 12. My sister was just starting college. My parents were in their early 40s and sort of tried to start over as, you know, regular civilians. That's the second half of the book, my adulthood, which has been quite secular, <laughs> and my attempt to reconcile the legacy which was, you know, seeped in this evangelical Christian understanding of the world and how it works and how one ought to behave. Um, and then coming to the city where different mores, to say the least, prevailed in the Antilles to the people who live there you were wealthy Americans coming in yes but because your family had adopted this missionary lifestyle you were actually quite poor yeah that and that was that was very odd I think I mean I try to remember what what our monthly income was was of our salary it was in the hundreds of dollars for a family of four Uh, so we lived off of you know, we had a house that was provided to us by the mission. And, you know, I have to say, for two of those years we lived on the island, we lived right on the water. I mean, this this island at the time, Bonaire was so underdeveloped, so undiscovered by the tourism industry that you could have this modest, single-story, missionary-owned housing, like, right on the water. So you can't really complain about living in the Caribbean. <laughs> but you have your backyard, and within 75 feet, there's you know, the water. But, yeah, our clothes were always hand-me-downs, or, you know, fished out of the missionary clothing barrel back at our sponsoring church in Minneapolis. And, you know, I, I looked at my mother's letters that she wrote to her family back in the states it's full of concern over the prices of things you know how much the cannabis costs and how much gas costs and electricity going out and all these things because they fluctuated a lot and we had no um, we had no cushion but at the same time you're with these people who are doing much worse and living you know much more materially poor conditions so you felt caught between being accused of being a very decadent a bit soft american and then going back to the States, as we would every two years, just sort of to, as a holiday or vacation and, and, to, and to raise money. And there to just quite literally be charity cases. Right. You write a lot about those furloughs in the States where <laughs> your parents basically drag you along as they do the slideshow. Talking about like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Here, here's the work that we're doing and we need your help. And, yeah, and, and you're sort yeah. of... And you're sort of ex- an accessory to that presentation. Yeah, and you know, it wasn't. Enti- it was. It sounds so so dreary <laughs> and manipulative and, and awful. But it wasn't all of that. I did enjoy this sense, and I think my sister to a certain extent too, of being special somehow. I mean, we knew we were different, and we weren't. And it was. And it had this sort of added advantage of being true. <laughs> a lot of kids feel different or they're misfits. Uh, maybe I would have felt like a misfit if we had stayed in Minneapolis the whole time. I mean, that's that's very likely. But in this case, we did have a sort of ex- this exotic life. And so that was, a, that was a compensation to the awkwardness. But yeah, it would be a good scene in the movie, I think. <laughs> <laughs> there was a difference between like, I mean, I think of like your time in the Antilles where... Transworld Radio was really sort of trying to 
introduce Christianity yeah. to these as this new and fresh and exciting thing. And then, well, well, okay. relatively speaking, in contrast to when you go to Europe and I and see. it's like, you know, you're trying to talk about Christianity to people who have already sort of like gotten over it, right, so to speak. Right, right. <laughs> That's definitely true. Well, further to the, the news. The newness of it. Yeah, it was introducing people to it. There was a lot of, you know, missionary, they would talk about people being unchurched. And by that, what I understand that term to mean is that people are unchurched, meaning they've, they've never been, intro- been introduced to the gospel, as you said. But also people that, because of the situations of their life or, or where they're living, simply don't have the structures of organized religion, like a church even a church building nearby to go to. So they would. Have, the idea was that they would have this radio programs that they could listen to that could, for believing or professing Christians, sort of sustain them in the way that someone living in Tulsa would just go to church. Mm-hmm. Not everyone can just go to church. So that was the idea. But yeah, to go from that to Holland, which was, you know, like the rest of Western Europe, already well on its way to us being a post-Christian culture, was strange. I think my parents, you know, they were certainly aware of that. They weren't that naive about that. What is also true, though, is that there wasn't much help from the organization to, A, get us to the culture shock, or as kids to be able to understand the broader context of what this move meant for us. So we were just sort of thrown in the deep end of the pool, thinking that, A, it would be fine, because unlike when we lived on the island, you know, we were the same color as everyone else, and we already spoke the language, and, and there was this real sense that oh, it was just going to be fine. Well, yes and no. <laughs> One of the things that was sort of beyond your understanding as a small child was in, in that European situation, where your father starts running into basically interpersonal office Yeah, conflicts. office politics. Office yeah, politics. Basically. And certainly, you know, this is all taking place when you're like you got 10, 11, 12. Yeah. So... How much of that do you even understand when you're that age? And then what's it like looking back at that and finally realizing what was going on 20 years later or however many years later? Um, that's a good question. I was not really aware of it. I was aware of tension. And, you know, when you're that young, you don't really have the uh, the vocabulary to describe what you're feeling, really, or even to apprehend what's going on around you. And um, at least I didn't. You're almost sort of afraid to ask. Just all you know is that your parents seem unhappy, uh, and you hope it's not because of anything you've done. But I've lost track of the question you were asking. So, I, and I guess right. I, oh, and yeah. coming, oh, and coming. Well, you know, I'm very grateful that um, my parents were le- just really leveled with me about that. And you know, this book could not have been written if a they had not sat down with me, uh, both in person and uh, especially over the phone and discussed it, and, and been really candid about what they experienced. And then I was also lucky that through Facebook and, and you know, the, the fact that missionaries tend to keep, that have passed and worked together at some point or passed each other and tend to keep in touch, or at least each other's contact information, that I was able to get, you know, gather some corroborating stories from people who were involved as well and who could say, yeah, that's pretty much what happened, you know. Not that I doubted the veracity of my parents' account of what happened, but just for my own sake, and even maybe for the sake of the narrative, I wanted to I wanted to get some other opinions. Now, in telling the story, you're you're kind of pinned in an interesting place, because you know, as you're talking to your parents and, and going through all this history, I mean, you haven't swung back to the church by 
you know, in the sense that they would like, that they would be, mm-hmm. you know, that they would love to see. But at the same time, and this is true for, throughout, I think, your, your secular life in New York, uh-huh. you don't buy into or you, you reject the stereotypical notions that other secular people you know, they, they make assumptions right. about what your childhood must have been like, about what Christian culture yeah, must have yeah. been like. And you're like, well, no, it's not like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, and that was a big part of my motivation for the book. You know, as someone who was raised by people whose faith and whose spiritual practice has le- leads them to characteristics and ways of being and ways of treating people uh, that are for the most part pretty admirable. Like my parents, I think, you know, my grandparents are also figure lightly in the book are people like that, and I wanted to honor to honor that. And uh, because if you, you know, if you want, if the for only Christians you know of are on TV, <laughs> or you read about them in the news, or you think that somehow Sarah Palin is a good representative of what a Christian mindset is, then then you have no idea. And I wanted to show these people who, who by and large, you know, who were gracious, who believed in forgiveness, who were generous, even in situations in which a purely secular materialist mindset would tell them they were stupid to be generous. They ought not to have been. They should have just tried to preserve what was theirs and not risk it. So it was an opportunity for me to, to show that. And open-mindedness, too. And I had, I had fun. I had fun doing that. And there's an interesting digression that you get into about sort of the historical moment at which evangelical and fundamentalist sects of Christianity are the ones that turn to the airwaves. Right, yeah. Specifically because it's like, it's the sort of more laid back, quiet, conservative branches of, of particularly the Protestant right, church that are like... mainline churches yeah, so were not interested in... Like, yeah, we don't need to bother with that. Yeah. And you sort of float this idea forward that it's like, well, okay, because it's those more flamboyant... And poor. And poor. People were from low class, mm-hmm. truly, you know, yeah. <laughs> literally lower class people. Because those representations get mm-hmm. perpetuated through the media, kind of float the idea of like, well, maybe there, there was a backlash effect. I think there's a backlash effect. I mean, we can get we can get into, or perhaps not, because it's a big topic, and I'll probably place, say something stupid about whether or not Christianity can be spread, so to speak, via media. I, I, I think it cannot and should not, but I'm not willing to go to Matt for that argument. Um, but give me like another year, maybe I will. I'd also say that, you know, a lot of this has to do with the entry of, of Christians into politics and the religious right, which really began when we left the country. You know, Jerry Falwell, we left in 78, Jerry Falwell, moral majority, all that started in 77. So we were not really there for the begin, you know, for that beginning of that movement. By the time we came back to the States in 87, it was quite firmly entrenched. It had really changed the nature of the conversation, both in, politic- in, in politics, partisan politics, certainly, and about Christianity. In a way that I think it's hard for people to remember, I mean, Jimmy Carter was seen as the weird Christian guy. You know, he was a, talked about being a Sunday school teacher. He said, you know, in the campaign, he was asked about his marriage. He said, oh, well, if he had cheated on Rosalind or Rosalind Carter, his wife, he said, well, I've, you know, I've lost it in my heart, you know, which is something that anyone who knows the New Testament would understand what he's, you know, what passages of scripture he's referring to. But the idea that Christianity would be associated, I mean, Southern Baptists would be associated with the Democratic Party just sounds outrageous to us now, but it wasn't so then. So coming back to the United States in 87 and to a sort of surface-level Christian culture that was very different from the Christianity that you'd grown up in 
as a missionary family or as a missionary mm-hmm. kid. Was that like a huge disconnect for you? Um, it was a disconnect in a way that I felt, you know, going to going to like the junior high church youth group stuff, which was a part of my life, but I and and I enjoyed to a certain extent, but it, the emphasis had shifted. So there was a lot of talk about Jesus, sort of Jesus as your friend. So that that idea, you know, someone you would turn to in times of trouble, almost like a teddy bear or something, was beginning to take hold. And, you know, I just found it really unsatisfying, you know, even as a young person, about 12 or 13 or 14. So I, you know, I stopped going to church or sort of having arguments with my parents, like, I don't want to go to church anymore. It's not really working for me when I was about 15 or 16. And that was a series of arguments, which, to be very honest with you, I don't remember. I remember the content and the shape and the feeling of those arguments. I don't remember a lot of the particulars of them. Maybe those memories will emerge later. Because um, my, my parents were sad about that, but they they let me go. <laughs> and I mean, or should I say, they let me stop going to church and let me, you know, that the fact that I was rejecting their their faith they displayed remarkable equanimity um, in the face of that in a way that I'm very grateful for because I think a lot of people don't have that experience where the parents are like, well, you reject the way we believe and we're going to reject you. So there, and this awful pettiness and years of crying. And yeah, I mean, so. in your case, it's it's almost like a sort of like mild moan of chastisement where your father's like, you know, you, you can't make it through life with just a secular attitude. Yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah. as much pressure as he puts on you. That's about as much pressure as he put it and, and then that was all he said. And, you know, at the time I was like, well, yeah, just watch me. You know, <laughs> it, was, it was like, I think I'll be fine. No, I mean, to be to be honest with you, I I have been going to church recently. I found a congregation in in um, in Lower Manhattan that I that I like, and I've met people there that I enjoy. And who knows what path that will take? But even now, my parents are very are very gracious. And there's not been, an, not once of those has there been any sort of like, I told you so, which would be very easy for them to do. They're all like, oh, that's interesting. Tell us about that. In addition to writing about those formative youthful experiences, you also talk about a family crisis a little bit closer to the present right. day, which I would imagine was a lot harder to write about because it's, I mean, certainly it's much more obviously emotionally yeah. devastating with um, your sister's situation. Yeah, um, that was really hard to write about. Well, it was hard just to write the scene or the scenes. Although there's part of that that part of the book, which is not a big part of the book, but it definitely is in there uh, towards the end. Well, let me just say it was one of the first things I wrote, and there are parts of it that I have have not really revised. There are several sections of the book that have been combed over and combed over and revised and revised and revised within an inch of their life, and, and then sometimes beyond an inch of their life, and then I had to scrap them because they were over-edited and start over and, and rewrite it from the beginning. But those parts just came out very raw, and they felt right that they'd be still sort of raw with the seams showing. But then I also I also faced a real ethical, moral dilemma. You know, was it was it okay for me to discuss this situation, this relationship, which I'll just say is abusive, I think is abusive. I should, I, lawyers are probably... <laughs> that many people would say, sure, but it's also a private affair, and you shouldn't air someone else's dirty laundry. I went back and forth in that, you know, for a couple of years and obviously ultimately decided that it was going to look. What has the reaction been like having made that decision? Well, I've received mainly support for it. I've 
consulted someone who is a how should I say an expert in the field and, and whether or not and, and does a lot of advocacy work uh, for victims and well she said that it was okay that I should go ahead and just do it so that was important to me my parents are fine with it and as for my sister that remains to be seen now your first book how to be useful was certainly framed by personal experience but much of the discussion took place on sort of a more abstract a level of abstraction yes um, whereas this one is deeply rooted in personal experience and there are di abstract digressions but it's always <laughs> yes. you always return there are not as many digressions as there were at the beginning like you know the first couple rounds the manuscript i wanted to talk about this i want to talk about that and they're like less scary well i mean i just it was like yeah you know, the way i write is pretty pretty spare it's pretty economical, you know. So if, if you're doing sort of like David Foster Wallace type, rapid velocity, freewheeling, barreling down on a bicycle down the hill kind of prose, then you can, you have the momentum to carry a lot of different ideas. It took me a while to admit that A, both the narrative spine that I had in this family's, this true experience, and my prose style were not sufficient, did not provide sufficient momentum to hold all those ideas, so I had to be a little more choosy. What are you looking at going forward? I know, for example, that you were posting sort of like, it was almost like a commonplace book of examples of discussions of class warfare. The class warfare thing was funny because I I was interested in doing a book about that. I was working on a book proposal because I class, issues of class are a, a subtext in everything I've Everything. All two books that I've written deal with issues of class and meritocracy and our lack thereof and privilege and how we experience them. But, uh, yeah, it was 2008, 2009 when I was thinking about that. So if I had been like, had, if I had much more energy and I didn't sleep and I wasn't so distracted by needing to earn money during those lean years, I could have actually done something with that. But that probably won't be revisited anytime soon. I would like to finish sooner rather than later this book on editing that I'm writing. It would be a short book, 15,000 words, maybe 20,000 words, about what I do at Wherewithal Press and where most of my income comes from, which is loosely editorial services, but in everything from ghostwriting to developmental editing, mostly developmental editing, helping people write, basically helping other people write their books is mostly what I do um, as an, in addition to content development and stuff. And I would like to be able to explain my process in a way that helps me get more business. <laughs> if any of you out there listening are aspiring writers or you have a, a book idea in you that you're looking for a way to get out, I would highly recommend talking to Megan about it. She's a fabulous writer and I've, I've been privileged to, to know her and her work for a while. Thank you. So we've been talking to Megan Husted about her memoir, More Than Conquerors, which is just out from Farrar Strauss Drew. You've been listening to Life Stories and I'm Ron Hogan. Now, if you are subscribed to us through iTunes already, thank you for that. And if you're listening to this and haven't subscribed to iTunes yet, it's very easy to do. We're right there in the iTunes store. Either way, if you could take a moment to rate and review the podcast, that would be really great. It helps make it easier for other people to find it as well. So thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us again for another episode soon. Take care.